Good deal. Man, we, uh, we, we finished out a series last week called Life Out of Order, and uh, so we're kind of in between series right now. And there was something that I said last week during the message. It was a passage of scripture that I referenced, and uh, it, was, it was very um, subtle. It wasn't, it wasn't like I hung there for a long time, but there was something that God just really started sharing with me immediately following the service. And there was a word that was there, and I just hung on that word, and I was like, God, there's got to be a reason for this. And so, um, you know, as I began to pray and just ask God what he would have for us today, he spoke this word that I'm going to give to you today. So I just kind of wanted to give you some background as to where I'm going today. But the passage of scripture that I referenced was in Revelation chapter 3. It's not going to be on the screen, but uh, basically what it was is Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. And this was the one, if you've ever heard somebody say lukewarm Christianity, uh, that's where they get that from because Jesus, when he spoke to the church in, in, in Laodicea in Revelation, he said, you are neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. And he goes down further into that, and one of the last things he tells them is, is that I stand at the door and I knock. And if you let me in, I will come in and dine with you. Well, in the New Living Translation, is the only translation that says this word, and that's the one that I typically read uh, the majority of the time. But it says that I stand at the door and knock, and I will come in and I will dine with you as a friend. As a friend. And that word friend just leapt out at me when I read that. And, and, and I was like, God... Man, you know like when you hear something and it just resonates with you? That was what was happening when I heard the word friend. And so what God was speaking to me is, is about being a friend of God. To be a friend of God. And that's what I want to talk to you today about, is about friendship with God. Now let me ask you this question. What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to be a friend? Now, I'm sure that we have probably about 80 to 90 different opinions right now on what a friend is at this very point, okay? But let's kind of narrow it down. Let's kind of come up with a working definition of what it means to be a friend, okay? I, I, I don't necessarily need you thinking about being a friend of God, but let's just think about being a friend in general, okay? The greatest place to start, in my opinion, is the dictionary. I love the dictionary. And here's what the definition of a friend is. A person attached to another by feelings of affection or personal regard. Now, I think that's interesting. I think that's an interesting definition. A person attached to another attached. Now, some of you would think that you really are attached to your friend, like physically attached, like at the hip. But it's interesting, a person attached to another. Now, here's some characteristics that I came up with as far as to what a friend is. And I'm talking about a friend in a, uh, in, in, in kind of a, um, you know, a friend between you and somebody else. These are just some characteristics that I came up with, okay? You might agree with this. You might not agree with this. But here's number one. 
uh, in order, uh, 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 the first characteristic of being a friend is being available. Being available. Being a good friend means that you're available. You know, if you say, well, my best friend Joe over here, and then every time I'm trying to get in touch with Joe, he's never available. Well, I don't know if Joe is such a great friend. See what I'm saying? Here's the second one. A good characteristic of a friend is one that listens. Now, I might be, like, stepping into a place that I really don't need to be, but have you ever gotten around those people that all they do is talk? Like, you can't get a word in edgewise. It's like, can you just be quiet? Like, for, like, are you going to allow anybody else to talk? You know what I'm saying? Anybody? Well, don't raise your hand because it might be the person sitting next to you. I don't know. I'm just saying. What? What? So, but a, a person that listens, you know, there just needs to be some times where you have somebody that you can go to and that's willing to listen to you. But on the flip side, you got to be willing to listen to them as well. Here's, here's another one. This is a good one. Tells us what we need to hear. Not what we want to hear. You ever had somebody like that? Like, like, not not needs, but wants. Like, like, they they just always want to tell you the good things. Those are the ones that you really got to be watching out for. The ones that can never tell you like what you need to hear, always what you want to hear. That's a little red flag. See what I'm saying? But like, you got to have somebody. A good friend is one that tells you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Another characteristic of a good friend is one that makes you stronger. I mean, Scripture tells us iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That kind of gives us the idea that friendship is supposed to make each part part of that friendship stronger. Okay? Here's another one. One that forgives you. Now, this is a hard one at times, isn't it? I mean, now, some things it's easy to forgive, but other things it's hard. It's hard. But Especially if we're going to be considered ourselves believers, if we're not willing to forgive, well, then what message do we believe in? Because that's what the foundation of Christ's message is, is forgiveness. And so to be a good friend, we have to learn how to forgive. Here's another one, to be trustworthy. This kind of goes hand in hand with listening. When, you know, somebody that's a good listener is also somebody that's trustworthy you know, that's willing to hear what you've got to say. It's not going to go tell somebody else. You see what I'm saying? You've got to have somebody that's trustworthy, that you can confide in, that you can share your deep, dark corners of your life with. So that's another characteristic. And then one, values spiritual growth. Values spiritual growth. That's th- Those are some characteristics of a good friend. Now, you can add to that. I'm not saying that's an all-inclusive list, but that's so if we want to know what does it mean to be a friend, it is a person attached to another. That's, yes, the definition. But then these are the characteristics of a good friend. Now, I think it's fair to say that we all have something inside of us. Dare I say instinct. A desire for friendship. I don't think there's any person that lives their entire life without an instinct for friendship, without a desire for friendship. We all desire to have a friend, right? And if we don't have a friend, we're looking for a friend. We want a friend. We desire a friend. Could that be on purpose? You know, sometimes I think like, man, there are things that God puts inside of us that are instincts that really are are kind of some things that 
that, that, that highlight things about who God is. Think about it. Have you ever, like, found yourself in a situation where you get scared or something happens without you having any notice of it happening? Like something, um, it could be like uh, you see a car wreck happen in front of you or you see uh, just something like that. Do, do you realize that a lot of people, their first words are, oh, God? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, even somebody that professes to be like, I don't believe in God. Oh, God. You know, it's just, it's an instinct. Could it be because we were created by God? In the same way, could it be the reason that we have an instinct and a desire for friendship is because God wants to be friends with us? Could it be that it's on purpose? Now, as we look in Scripture, the funny thing about it is, is that we're only told of three people in the Bible. Three people in the Bible that are specifically called friend of God. Isn't that something? Three people. One was Lazarus, the one that he rose from the dead in John chapter 11. Lazarus is called a friend of God. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, I guess, like, if you want to be raised from the dead, it's, it's pretty good to be, like, best friends with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, second guy is Abraham, okay? I'm not going in any particular order, obviously. But Abraham is, uh, you know, the guy in, in the Old Testament in Genesis. He's the one that God calls to, uh, that he's going to give him a son. He's going to be the father of many nations, all right? We find his story in Genesis. But James, James, the guy in the New Testament in chapter 2, kind of gives us some insight into Abraham. And so he says this in James chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. He says, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say, You have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So what James is telling us is just like, look, if you're going to say you have faith in God, it's got to be backed up by doing something good. There's got to be something, there's got to be fruit behind it. You can't just say, I got faith in God, and then don't produce any fruit. You've got to produce fruit. That's the argument that James is making here. And then he goes into an example of this. In verse 21, he said, Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And for those of you that are unfamiliar with the story in Genesis, when, when, when Abraham is called by God to become the father of many nations, the dude is 75 years old. He's an old guy. And, G, and, and God speaks to him and says, you're going to have a son. I'm sure Abraham's like, well, I'm kind of past that. Like, what's the deal here? And guess what? He didn't even have the son until 25 years later. He was 100. Like, I got three kids. I'm 35. And let me tell you, like, I'm tired. I'm tired right now. Much less thinking about being 100, getting my first one. Good night. 
But when Abraham has Isaac, Isaac obviously grows up because he's talking to his dad. There's a, there's a knowledge that's about uh, Isaac. And there's this point where God says, you got to sacrifice your son to me. Now, if I'm Abraham, and I've waited 100 years to get this, we'll just say Isaac's 12. So 112 years. I've had 12 years with this guy that I've been waiting on for 100. There ain't no way. Sorry, God, come up with a different plan. That ain't working. But Abraham was a man of faith. And he backed it up by his actions, which is what James just told us. And so he goes to sacrifice Isaac. Now, if you read the story, God stops him as he brings the knife up and then provides the ram in the thicket. But it goes on to say, you see his faith, this is verse 22, and his actions work together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. So we see another aspect of friendship with God is based on our faith and what our faith produces. And then the third guy is Moses. And we're going to hang out with Moses for a little bit today. Now, a question that we should ask, and we could ask this for all three of these guys, but we're specifically going to ask this question for Moses, is why was Moses a friend of God? Why was Moses a friend of God? Well, let's go back to where this friendship began in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, 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 the thing that's interesting here to me is tending the flock. Tending the flock. There's another guy that we read about that tends the flock. And his name's David. Remember, David was tending his father's sheep when Samuel came to anoint him as king. He was also tending those same sheep when his father came to him and said, hey, I need you to bring a bag lunch to your brothers who are fighting against the Philistines. And David shows up with the sack lunch and sees this guy named Goliath who's taunting the Israelites. The Israelites are in utter fear of this man. And David comes along and he says, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I serve a God who's bigger than Goliath. And we all know what happened. David defeats Goliath. Here, here's something that we have to realize, is that every ordinary day has the possibility of being extraordinary. Every ordinary day that we live has the possibility to be an extraordinary day. Now let's go back to Exodus 3.1. In Exodus 3.1, we're talking about Moses tending some sheep. And it says, he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. This was just another ordinary day for Moses that was about to become the most extraordinary day of his entire life. Now here's something else that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is it says, far into the wilderness. What, what, what is all that about? Some translations say the backside of the desert. Now, I've never, I've never truly been to a desert before. 
I'm not exactly sure of what the backside of the desert really is or where that is, but I would have some kind of uh, common sense about that phrase that says that's pretty deep into the desert. Like it's not just on the outskirts. It's not like I'm just tipping my toe into the sand a little bit. I mean, this dude is deep into the desert, like, which gives me this idea that that, that something else is going on here. It's just not, I mean, yeah, it might be a regular day for him. But why didn't he just take them to the outskirts of the desert and let the sheep do whatever the sheep do in the desert? I don't know what they do in the desert, but just let them do their thing and then pull them back into the community, not going to the backside of the desert. So how did Moses get to this point? Because he's 80 years old when we're reading this particular passage, 80 years old. Um, now, the crazy thing about this is, is we, we, there's a lot of life that Moses has lived in that 80 years. Moses' life started by his mom putting him into a basket because there was a threat against all the firstborn males of Israel by Pharaoh. And so he was having them all killed. And Moses' mom was like, that ain't happening to my baby. So the next best thing is, we're going to throw him in the basket and put him in the river where there's crocodiles happening. I don't know if she necessarily wins Mother of the Year award on that one, but we'll go with it. But what we see by this is, is that nothing happened to him. He drifts into Pharaoh's palace where Pharaoh's daughter is hanging out in her hot tub. And there comes Moses and she sees him and she's like, there's no way that we can allow this baby to be killed. I'm going to take him in. I'm going to raise him. Now, if that doesn't tell you anything about God, in the fact that he is a sovereign God, in the fact that he is a God of purpose, in the fact that he's going to allow that to happen, to achieve something that's not even going to happen for another 80 years, is beyond me. So let that be an encouragement. This is a little side note. Let that be an encouragement to you. Because the majority of us in this room, if not all of us, are, be, are under the age of 80 here today. And you might be sitting there going, well, you know what? I don't know what God wants for my life. Maybe I've just passed it. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's nothing left for me. But can I encourage you that God was preparing Moses by allowing his mom to put him into a basket, by drifting him into Pharaoh's daughter's hot tub, and, 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 and 80 years later, for a purpose. He saved his life for a purpose 80 years later. It's amazing. Now, here's the thing. He lives for 40 years in Pharaoh's palace, growing up as a prince of Egypt. 40 years. This guy's got it all. I mean, he, he doesn't want for anything. I mean, he is one of the most powerful people on the face of the planet by being the prince of Egypt. And he was that way for 40 years. Well, somewhere in that 40 years, he begins to realize he's not truly an Egyptian, that he's really a Hebrew. And at the 40-year mark, he's had enough of seeing his own people getting oppressed in this slavery that they were in to Egypt. And so one day he goes and he kills an Egyptian who's beating a Hebrew. And he buries him in the sand, thinks nobody saw him, but somebody did. And then he had to flee. So when we get to this passage in Exodus chapter 3, he has now been in the wilderness for 40 years. 
He's been in the desert for 40 years. Now, I don't know if it took him 40 years to finally find the backside of the desert. I don't know if this was the first time that he actually got to the backside of the desert. But the thing about it is, is that for Moses to go that far into the wilderness, to go into the backside of the desert, suggests that he's looking for something. I mean, think about the questions that had to rattle in Moses' brain. I was, the most, I was one of the most powerful people in the world, and now I'm so obscure. Nobody knows who I am. I'm so far away from where I was. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I don't have any possessions. These sheep aren't even mine. They're my father-in-law's. My father-in-law's sheep. I'm taking care of sheep. Moses is searching for something. He had to be thinking to himself, there's a reason There's got to be a reason why I went through what I went through. I've got to figure it out. I'm searching it out on the backside of the desert. And then in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, this is where it gets really cool. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Verse 4, when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. You know what's interesting? When we hear about a burning bush, we think, man, I would have been amazed by that too. But can I suggest to you that this was not the first burning bush that Moses saw? We're getting a lot of strange looks right now. There is this thing called spontaneous combustion. And they actually have seen this in desert type places where all of a sudden spontaneous combustion will happen and a bush will set itself on fire. Crazy, right? I mean, I'd like to see that myself. So it's not the first time that he sees a bush burning, but what is the first thing, the first time that he has seen something is the fact that the bush was not consumed. There had to be something that caught his attention. What was it? It was the fact that the bush was not burning up. It was on fire, but not burning up. See, if all these other burning bushes he's seen, they were burning up. They were going to nothing, but this one stayed intact. This one was not consumed by the flame. But may I suggest to you that there could be something else. Maybe he was hearing some sound waves coming from the bush, and he said, man, this is way uh, just the craziest thing. First of all, it's not burning up. Second of all, I'm hearing things. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been spending 40 years in the desert, now you're on the backside, you begin to question some things. Like, am I okay? Like, am am, am I losing it here? Am I hallucinating here? What is going on? Now, I want to read you, this is not going to be on the screen, but this is the message translation of the passage that we just read. It says, Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro. I'm I'm going to skip down, sorry. Um, Uh, It says, uh, then the angel of of God appeared to him in flames of fire blazing out of the middle of a bush. He looked, the bush was blazing away, but it didn't burn up. Moses said, what's going on here? I can't believe this. Amazing. Why doesn't this bush burn up? And here's verse 4. This is what I want to lock in on. God saw that he had stopped to look. 
and God called to him from out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, yes, I'm right here. It says that God saw that he had stopped and looked. Can I ask you a question? Are we stopping long enough in our lives to look? Are we stopping long enough in our lives to look? Because can I suggest to you this morning that there are burning bushes all around us every single day of our life, and it's God trying to get your attention, trying to get my attention. But we live in, 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 our, in these lives of busyness, in these lives of chaos, that we don't want to take the time to stop and look. God is desiring to get your attention. He wants your attention. And so we walk through every day of our lives, and I truly believe that there are burning bushes everywhere, and he's just waiting for you to stop and look so that he can speak to you. The Word says that God's voice is like a a small, gentle whisper. How can you hear that if you're just steady in the chaos and busyness of life? There's got to come a point where you stop and you look. And you begin to hear it. You know, James tells us that when we draw close to God, then he draws close to us. And if we look at Jesus' life, if you, if you read the Gospels, and you read it through looking at the times that he touched people, I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but most of the time it was because people interrupted him. It was because he was on a mission to go towards a place and somebody cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, like the blind guy did. Or like the woman with the issue of blood who just broke through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. It wasn't that he was purposefully searching those people out. Those people were purposely searching him out. And they were drawn close to him. They were willing to interrupt what he was doing because they needed God. They were looking at him saying, that's my burning bush moment. I got to stop. I got to look and I got to cry out. I got to stop him. I've got to interrupt him because I need him. You see, there's something about taking ownership in our lives that a lot of the times we don't want to do. You know, if we deal with a physical condition, we deal with a mental condition, we want to deal with a, with a spiritual condition, sometimes we don't want to take ownership of that. We just, we just think, woe is me. I cannot believe this has happened to me. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. There's got to be a point where we've got to take ownership of it. We've got to take initiative because you guess what? Jesus moved when people moved. And then it continues in verse 5. So we see Moses stopped. He took a look. God called to him. He starts going that way. He says, God, here I am. And then this is what it continues with in verse 5. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look 
of God. You know what's interesting to me? Is that when he heard the voice say, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's when the fear of the Lord entered into Moses. Why? Why? That means Moses had to have heard the stories of Abraham. He had to hear the story of Abraham at some point in his life about Abraham having so much faith that he was willing to take his one and only son up into the top of the mountain to sacrifice him. But God stopped him and provided. He heard the story of Isaac. He heard the story of Jacob. And when he heard that, he knew at that point, this is the Lord. And there was a there was a fear of the Lord that came over Moses in this moment. Can I encourage you that we all have a story here today? You have a story. I have a story. We have a story. And you know what? Your story might not just be for the here and now, but your story could be for a future generation. You know, think about if Abraham didn't do what God wanted him to do. Isaac didn't do it. Jacob didn't do it. And God couldn't point back to them and say, this is who I am. That's why we can't just, just lollygag in life. This might seem funny to you, but you know what I tell my, my son all the time? Stop piddle farting around. That's a southern term. We can't just piddle fart through life. I'm serious. We cannot just do that in life and expect that we're just going to have something amazing happen in our lives. God is looking for you and I to move. Our story needs to be told. And it continues in Exodus 3-7. Then the Lord said to him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. And yes, I am aware some translations say, yes, I know of their suffering. There's three words here. The Lord saw their oppression. He heard their cries. He was aware of it. He knew it. You know what this tells me is that God has feelings. God has feelings, very real feelings. He sees things. He hears things. He knows things, and it breaks his heart. There's something that happens when he sees, and he hears, and he knows. He gets to this place where he's like, I have to do something, and Moses, I need you to partner with me to make this happen. You know, sometimes we think that God is just this big omnipotent figure, and he is, and that he just stands on top of the universe, and he's just so far out of reach that he doesn't have a care in the world, a clue in the world, or whatever. We just think that he's just some untouchable thing, but yet he is a very real God who has very real feelings, and he sees you. He hears you. He knows you. You know what happens when those two things come together? Is deliverance. Moses saw, he heard, and he knew, and he provided deliverance. Maybe God is waiting to 
see you, to hear you, to know you. Maybe somebody that we don't even know on the outside of these walls is crying out right now. They don't even know who they're crying out to, but they're crying out and God hears their cry. And we've got to be willing and able and ready to listen. There's some of you that need a Moses today and there's some people out there that need us to be a Moses for them. Then it goes on, verse 9. It says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? I don't know about you, but this is quite a way to begin a friendship, isn't it? I mean, there's no pleasantries. There's no like, hey, how you doing? What's up? It's like God's just there. He's like, okay, Moses, you're Moses. I'm God. You're delivering my people out of Egypt. All right? You game? You ready? Let's do this. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's a lot to take in in a matter of minutes. And so sometimes we we kind of we kind of we kind of put down Moses a little bit for coming up with these excuses. We just think like if we're Moses, we're signing up for the job. Put me in, coach. But I think we would respond very very similar to how Moses responded. He protested to God. He said, "Who am I?" I don't think that was necessarily because Moses didn't know who he was. I think he very much knew who he was. And he was telling God, do you realize who you're talking to? Because 40 years ago, I tried that on my own. And look at where it got me. It got me on the backside of the desert. Because 40 years ago, I tried to deliver my brother. And I killed one Egyptian. And I messed it all up. It was a total failure. And now... I'm not even in position. I'm on the backside of a desert talking to a bush that's burning but not burning up. I'm borderline crazy right now. Do you know who you're talking to? But isn't it great to realize that sometimes we try to do things on our own and we fail and so then we give up. When maybe we're doing the right thing We're just maybe doing it at the wrong time. And maybe we're doing it without God. God was saying, no, you were. Yes, I get it. You didn't do it the right way. But let us come together. Let us partner. Let you do it my way. And let's be successful together. So that was protest number one. Here's protest number two. Verse 12, God answered him, I'll be with you. That sounds great, doesn't it? That sounds great. I'll be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, well, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Now, that's a great question. Like, what, what, what's your name? Like, give me a name. Like, Joe sent me. Okay, Joe's his name. Joe's his name. All right, we know Joe. 
But look at how God replied to him. He says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me. Can we have you say that one more time, God? Because I don't know if I correctly heard you the first time. I am. So Moses is sitting there thinking to himself, so what you're telling me, God, is that I got to go and I got to just tell him I am. You see, we, 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 we kind of have a disadvantage when we read these stories because we already know the answer and all that kind of stuff. But let's try to work through this like we've never heard this before. That's crazy. That's just crazy to go in front of somebody and say, yeah, I'm coming to deliver you out. Yeah, you've been in bondage and slavery for yeah, yeah, 400 years. I mean, you realize how long that is? That's a long time. That's a long, long time. And now some guy's just going to show up and say, hey, the God of your, of your ancestors has sent me to deliver you. Let's, let's, let's do this. Well, tell us what his name is. I am. I am. I am's his name. I am. I am what? I don't know. It's just I am. Think about that. But it makes sense that God would say that because if you think about it, God's not really giving Moses much of a plan, is he? He's not giving him the road map of how to do it. He just said, go, go back to Pharaoh, let's do this. Well, that's all fine and good, but how are we going to do it? I am. That's how we're going to do it. I am. I'm going to be whatever you need me to be at whatever point in time I need to be it. I am. I need to send a plague. I'm going to be the plague. I, you know, I need to do this. I'm going to do that. You need to be delivered. I'm, I am the deliverer. You need hope. I am hope. You need salvation. I am salvation. You need freedom. I am freedom. That's what he was saying. I am. I am. You might be sitting there today going, man, God, I need this. Well, guess what? His response to you is, I am. Then he goes to protest number three in Exodus 4, 1 through 9. This isn't going to be on the screens, but he says this. He's basically saying, hey, look, these people, they're going to think that I'm crazy coming here. Like, like what, what am I supposed to do? And that's when, like, he told Moses to throw a staff on the ground. It turned to a snake, put his hand in his thing, came out with leprosy, put it back in, and his hand became whole again. He said, these will be signs to them, so they're not going to think that you're crazy. And then protest number four says, I can't speak well. That's in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. He says, I can't speak well. If you go back to Acts chapter 7 and, and read chapter 7 on your own time, this was when Stephen was about to be martyred, and so he was giving his case about who he was and about who God was. And he gets this whole thing about Moses, and you know what he says about Moses? He said Moses grew up in the palace where he learned how to speak well. Well, wait a minute, Moses. I think you got a pretty good education there in the 40 years that you lived over in Egypt, man. You learned how to speak just right. But he said, I don't speak well. Then, you know, Moses says, man, just send somebody else. Send somebody else. And so God finally just relented and said, okay, you're still going to go. I'll give you your brother Aaron. There you go. Have fun. All right? 
And then, like, we, we know the story. He goes into Egypt, ten plagues. Finally, after the tenth one, which is where all the firstborn children of, of the Egyptians got killed, uh, that's where you get the name Passover from because they had to put blood on the, on the doorpost of their house, and that's how the death angel knew to pass over their house, and so that's where we get Passover from. And so that happened. They, the, 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 the Israelites leave out of Egypt. They go to this mountain, and they're, they're worshiping God. Now let's fast forward 30 chapters. There's a lot of good stuff that happened between 3 and 33. Go back and read that on your own time. As Christina comes back up, this is what it says in Exodus 33, verses 7 through 10. It says this, It was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and to set it up some distance from the camp. Some translations say far from the camp. Everyone who wanted to make a request of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the entrances of their own tents. They would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. And as he went into the tent, the pillar of the cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And when the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their tents. Now think about it. Think about it. Where did the friendship between Moses and God begin? It began far into the wilderness. Fast forward 30 chapters later, we've got this tent of meeting where, where Moses goes and has a moment in the presence of God, and it says that he set it up some distance. Like I said, some translations say, far from the camp. I think what Moses wants us to understand is that he had to get away from the noise of culture. He had to get away from the noise of just everyday life to be able to have the intimacy with God that he so desperately desired, that he so desperately needed. Now, maybe, just maybe, the reason why you're not at the level in the relationship with God that you really desire to be at or want to be at or say you want to be at is because you're not willing to remove yourself from the noise of life. You've got to identify a place that you can go and that you can block off every distraction so that you can spend the time with God that He desires to spend with you. Then in verse 11, inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And afterward, Moses would return to the camp. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. We finally get to this place where it says that Moses met with God face to face. He didn't really see him face to face, but you can see that there is like a true friendship that has formed between God and Moses. And I mean, Moses is digging his time with God. He loves his time with God. But there was somebody else that observed Moses. 
that was willing to also stop and look. And his name was Joshua. And it says that after Moses would leave, Joshua would stay there. see, Joshua got it. He got it. But the reason that he got it was because he had somebody model it before him. My question is, is what are we modeling to our kids? What are we modeling to the next generation? Are we modeling a life that says, I'm willing to remove myself out of, out of the busyness, the chaos, the, the, the noise of life so that I can spend time with God? Does the next generation see that our hearts burn for Him? Does the next generation see that, 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 that our number one priority is Him? Or do they see something else? see, the greatest thing that we can pass down to the next generation is not an inheritance of what this world calls wealth, but it's a spiritual inheritance. It's one of which says, man, the presence of God is everything. It was modeled before Joshua, and guess what? Joshua got it. And Joshua was willing to go to a place that Moses wasn't even willing to go to. Because Joshua was like, I'm going to take Moses' hunger and I want more. We see it through scripture, even with Elijah and Elisha. Elisha guy said, I want a double portion. It's not enough just to have what you had. I want more. When the next generation looks at us, do they say, I want more of God? Or do they say, I don't even care? And here's the last thing. 33 verses 12 through 19 it says one day Moses said to the Lord you've been telling me take these people up to the promised land but you have not told me whom you will send with me you have told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you if it is true that you look favorably on me let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor and remember that this nation is your very own people the Lord replied I will personally go with you Moses and I will give you rest, and everything will be fine for you. Verse 15, look at this. This is so important. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me or me or on your people if you do not go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I have looked favorably on you, and I know you by name. And Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. What Moses was saying is, God, I want to see your face. In chapter 3, we saw that he hid his face. He, he, was, he was such in, in fear of that initial moment that he was like, i got to hide my face to where now he's like, I need to see your face. Show me your face. Show me your presence. And the Lord replied, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone that I 
choose. But I want to go back to something in verse 15. Where it says, then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. Capture this picture. Capture this moment, if you will. Moses spent 40 years in the palace, 40 years in the wilderness, and 40 years of leading the people, the Israelites, in the wilderness. He gets to the edge of the promised land. That's success, isn't it? Promised land says success. It says We've gotten here. We've, we've, we've attained the goal, if you will. That was success to Moses. It was to get the people to the promised land. That was what success was. But you know what Moses says in verse 15? I don't care if I'm on the edge of the promised land and I'm about to step foot into it. If your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want to go. Listen to me, sometimes what we do is we allow success to supersede the presence of God. I dare say that that's what we've done in the American church today. We've gotten more consumed with success than we have the presence of God. I've said this to you before, I get emails, I get inundated with emails every week about five ways to grow your attendance and five ways to get a bigger offering and five ways to do this and six ways to do that. And, 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 and it's all about how to get bigger and better and to be more successful. And not one time in any of those things do they ever mention the presence of God. Do they mention the Holy Spirit? And Moses is sitting here saying, Hey, listen, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I, hey, listen, if you want me to have everything, then so be it. But I don't want any of it unless I've got your presence. Because Moses was at a place where he was like, if I don't have your presence, I don't care what success is. I don't care what success looks like. I don't care what success gives to me, does for me. I don't want it. I just want you. You see, sometimes we're so consumed about the success of our marriage, the success of our families, the success of our kids, the success of our careers, and, and, and we live a life that's absolutely miserable trying to attain that success because we believe in success more than we believe in the presence of God. Well, what if we just got ourselves away from the noise of life, the noise of culture, and just spent time in the presence of God? Maybe he would speak something into us. Maybe he would share something, some insight on what our marriage really needs to look like, or what our kids really need to be doing, or what our lives need to look like, what our careers need to look like. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's the presence of God that we really need and not just more success. Back to the original question. Why was Moses a friend of God? Why was Abraham a friend of God? Why was Lazarus a friend of God? Here's the answer. Moses continually pursued the presence of God. Think about it. Lazarus. 
Lazarus was just the guy that said, hey, if Jesus is here, I want to spend time with him. That's the reason Jesus, when he came into where Lazarus lived, he was like, I'm staying with Lazarus. This dude wants me to be with him. I'm going to go where I'm wanted. Think about Abraham. Think about the place that Abraham got to. He's climbing up that mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac, the one that was promised to him. And Isaac looks at him and says, Dad, we've got the fire and we've got the wood, but I don't have the sacrifice. Like, where are we going to get the sacrifice? And you know that Abraham knows the answer, that Isaac, you're the sacrifice. And he just keeps telling his son, hey, God's going to provide. They get up there. And and can you imagine the picture of Abraham laying Isaac onto the altar, his son? He's probably weeping. He's probably like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to give my child up. God, you even promised him to me. But guess what? I want your presence more than I want my son. And he was willing to take his son's life because he couldn't deal with the thought of being separated from the presence of God. Our kids deserve a mom and a dad that's like that. Where we say, God, I'm willing to do whatever. I just, because guess what? Here's the thing. It was never God's intention to take Isaac's life. It was his intention to, sh- to, to, to see Abraham and who he really was. And to see if his faith was real, if it was genuine, if it was really what he said it was. And it was. And so God said, look, I'm not even going to let you do this anymore. I provided the sacrifice. But see, some of us aren't willing to get to the spot where we say the presence of God or nothing. Moses is like, I've spent my entire life, I've spent 120 years to finally get to the promised land. And here's what I'm going to tell you, God, I don't want it if you're not coming. You ever worked for something so long, so hard, you get right there to the edge of it? You can taste it, you can see it, you can feel it. And that's where Moses was. And he said, God, if it doesn't include you, doesn't include your presence, I'm just going to stay where I'm at. That's how you become a friend of God. I can tell you this, I desire for my kids, I know this is kind of a morbid thought, but the day that I'm laying in a casket, I want them to say, you know what, my dad was a great man because he was a friend of God. I can tell you a lot of things about my dad, but one thing I'm not going to leave here not telling you is, is that he was a friend of God. you know what friends of God do? Friends of God change nations. Friends of God change changes generations. What I want people to think about when they hear Cultivation Church is, is They might not be the largest church in town. They might not have the most money in town. They might not have all of this or that or whatever. But one thing I can tell you about them is that they are friends of God. 
Let's stand all over this place today.